Welcome back to another episode of the Medical Republic. This once a week podcast for curious GPs is now a rolling coverage of all the dramatic changes to general practice as the COVID-19 crisis continues to unfold. I'm Francine Crimmins and I'm joined by my colleague and co-host Felicity Nelson. Welcome everyone. It's good to be back co-hosting even if we're not able to be in the same studio. (laughs) Yeah, you're right. We're bringing this podcast to you from three locations, my house, Felicity's house and wherever our special guest is tuning in from today. Our special guest today has been in the limelight over the past few weeks as he's been leading the ABC's COVID-19 coverage. Dr Norman Swan is medical doctor turned science journalist and he's the creator of the well-known Health Report, but more recently he's become a little bit of a divisive character in the media. In recent weeks, he's become quite outspoken about the government's response to COVID-19. Now that he's launched a podcast specifically about COVID-19, the Coronacast, he's probably one of the most listened to commentators in the country on this topic, even if not everyone agrees with his point of view all the time. This interview was recorded on the 7th of April. Welcome, Dr. Norman Swan, to the Medical Republic podcast. Thanks for having me. So COVID-19 is probably the fastest moving and most complex and high stakes health story that will happen in our lifetimes. And I imagine it's been as much as a whirlwind for you as it has been for us here at the Medical Republic. We're really interested in hearing from you. What's it, what has it been like at the ABC? Have things changed for you over the last few weeks? Um, how has your role shifted? Um, well, it's been an interesting time. I think it's fair to say. The... Um, so I started covering it early on. In fact, I think the first email I sent to it was to the executive producer of The Breakfast Show around about early January saying, this is something peculiar going on in China. We should keep an eye on it. And I uh, started covering it fairly early and then it just exploded out of control. I think that was on the 7th of January. So I've been keeping an eye on it for a while. And remember that summer holidays, bushfires, everything else going on. And then you get the first case in Australia on the 25th of January. And... So I was covering a bit on the health report, and the you've got to understand how the ABC works. So the ABC is in different departments. Radio National is, is an area of its own right. We have a science unit, and we have science broadcasting, and we're in a whole ecosystem of science broadcasting. But there are other ecosystems within the ABC, one of which is news and current affairs, which I do work for from time to time, doing Four Corners in particular, and also when I present Radio National Breakfast, which I did uh, in January, in fact, the week before the first case, that's for News and Current Affairs. So I have a relationship with News and Current Affairs, and they came to me and they said, this is going, you know, this looks getting, this is getting big, people have got a lot of questions, why don't we do a daily podcast on it, which I was very open to doing, and uh, which we start, we did with um, a really fantastic producer, a young producer called Will Ockenden, who is uh, fully literate in podcasting, understands what you've got to do, a very fast worker, and uh, Tegan Taylor, who's one of my colleagues in uh, the science unit who's based in Brisbane as my co-host. And without, without realizing it, we essentially walked into a vacuum and didn't quite appreciate it. And within a day or two of releasing this Coronacast, which I think was Will's name, Will came up with a name for it, um, releasing this, the place went nuts. Um, And we were getting millions of, literally millions of downloads. I mean, it was shot to the top of um, the, the various podcast trees. 
Um, I'm sounding as if I know what I'm talking about. I don't really, but you know, whatever metrics they use, this was near the top very, very quickly. Uh, it became the biggest thing that the ABC was doing. And essentially all we were doing was a very simple story. We were answering people's questions and covering once a day uh, an interesting piece of research that, might, that, that was coming out. And we've continued to do that daily um, since we started. I can't even remember the date we started. And we have we've added elements like uh, we've taken call-in from children, um, asking kids asking questions, which has been very powerful and very popular. And then I find, and I find myself being um, asked questions about this virus that people felt weren't being answered anywhere else. And um, so I start, started finding myself on television three, four times a day, on radio three, four times a day, um, and answering questions where, to be fair, everybody was in a bit of an information vacuum. But essentially, that's what I do, is that I try to translate complex information into simple messages, and that's what I started doing. I've always had an interest in epidemiology and public health, and um, and, I, and and many years ago, I made a four-part series on pandemics. So I, I, I knew the literature, uh, understood this, and not only that documentary series, which went to air on Channel Four in the UK, um, I've uh, you know I've written about it a lot as well. So I kind of walked into a vacuum, which the vacuum at times felt either like a vacuum and you filled the vacuum, or sometimes it felt like a plate glass window because what I was doing wasn't necessarily appreciated by the federal government. So you've just brought up a few different things. One of them is that it sounds like your workload and I guess work-life balance has increased dramatically in the last little while. I think it's something that a lot of science journalists have felt. How has your lifestyle changed personally as a result of the COVID-19 restrictions and being in broadcast? Lifestyle. Now, that's a familiar word. Work-life balance, familiar phrase. I've heard I've heard people talking about these things, but I don't actually know <laughs> what they mean. Look, what what happened was, um, I you know I I don't get obsessed with social media. I I don't watch these things. I don't take it seriously. I've been in the media long enough, but I hadn't quite appreciated um, what was going on. And then then it sort of came to me. So a friend, for example, um, texted me saying you realize you've driven my physiotherapist out of business. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, you were talking about swimming pools the other day and her clients have stopped coming to her, the hydrotherapy pool. And I thought, oh God, I didn't say that. I just said swimming pools were, you know, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. Uh, and then a couple of other things came back. I thought, I, I'm actually saying things that have a lot of people listening that have an impact, and that's truly scary. The, the 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 world you know has gone mad a little bit when that that's happened. And uh, but anyway, the, the ABC, the ABC. Well, I should say the ABC. So the people I report to, the people immediately I report to, sat me down one day and and gave me a talking to. It was quite it was quite funny because they're both kind of younger than me, but they gave me this talking to. And essentially the talking to was twofold. One was, you do realize that this has become bigger than Ben-Hur and, you know, loose lips sink ships. Uh, so not that, not that I'd actually made any mistakes. Um, in fact, 
where he, I think I've made two mistakes in the, the time when we've corrected them. Um, but it was just, they just gave me a, you know, a little bit of a reality check that um, this was actually having an influence. And we just needed to think that through. If I didn't want to put the whole gymnasium business out of, you know, gymnasium industry out of business, just from some casual remark. And so that was a good corrective, actually, just to realize that. And then the second thing they did was um, about my mental health and well-being, which was I, I was saying yes to too much. I mean, the ABC has something like 200 radio stations, and I feel sorry for the ones that are in rural areas and like to help them out. But as soon as the, you go on one, you go on millions. And so essentially, the um, my editor in science, science editor, Jonathan Webb, um, he became my door bitch and still is my door bitch. And so essentially he he fields phone calls and edits it out. And then at the end of the day, he'll say, you know, Fox FM, I want you to do this. And you know, which ones do you want to do? And, and we work out just how I portion, I, I portion out my time with the highest priority being to the ABC. And, and it's just rationalized down to where I, I, I do 7.30 twice a week, Monday, Wednesdays, and I do news breakfast twice a week. I do Radio National Breakfast at least once a week and the odd bits and pieces here and there. And that's, I was finding myself not having enough time to read the journals, which was a dangerous place to be. Yeah, it sounds like the ABC has been uh, very supportive behind you editorially. We did want to ask you, however, Norman, if anyone else has tapped you on the shoulder, whether government or other outside media players. Has anyone been unsupportive of any of the information? Um, well, the, the News Limited has not been a fan and uh, various writers for News Limited have um, gone on the attack and, um, you know, I take, I take criticism seriously, but also equally they like attacking the ABC, so in some senses it's a badge of honour. Um, and, the, and their attack is, well, who's this person with, uh, to be questioning public health officials and the committees in government and so on. And in fact, the Public Health Association of Australia even said that. Um, and well, my answer is fairly simple, is that I've been a medical journalist for a long time now. Um, I think I know how to read evidence and translate it uh, for the lay public and tell me when I'm wrong. Um, the feedback from the federal government indirectly, not directly, uh, has been that I've been getting ahead of them and they find that an uncomfortable place to be. But essentially, my job is to hold government, uh, any government journalist's job. We're the fourth estate. We hold, we hold government to account, and that's our job. And I just think um, it's, you know, it's, that's what we do, and just got to keep on doing it. And what, the, what, the, what really the um, community wanted was just somebody to tell them what was going on explain the statistics, explain this disease as much as we knew it, and tell them it's straight and not, and not treat them like idiots. I'm not saying the government was treating them like idiots. It's just that the, I just think they were being two things in the beginning of the epidemic. They were being overly cautious and they didn't want to panic anybody. And I called it public relations valium. And I think as, as, whenever somebody in government says effectively, don't you worry, we've got this under control, that's when people panic. Uh, transparency is what's needed. And I think they're much better now than they were. I don't take any credit for that, but I think they're much better than they were. They had a very bad week a few weeks ago when you know, they were still insisting on in proceeding with the football and the Grand Prix, but they've, they've got over that and their messaging has settled down. 
And has anyone from the federal government reached out to you personally um, to talk to you about how you're covering this COVID-19 crisis? So, for instance, have you spoken directly with the Chief Medical Officer, Brendan Murphy? Yeah, Brendan and I had a conversation, I don't know, two or three weeks ago. And it was I've known Brendan for many, many years. He knows me. We know each other well. We like each other. And we had a very friendly conversation where uh, it was mostly about commiserating with each other about the situation, which is so bizarre. Um, Brendan did not offer any criticism. It was just, I think it was just reaching out to say, don't worry, there's, I'm not burying a hatchet in your head. And, you know, I made it clear that it was the same thing. And we chatted a little bit about how messaging might change. And, and I think, um, you know, the, the way we discussed how the messaging might change is probably the way it's gone. It probably would have gone that way anyway. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was very friendly. There was no, there was no coercion or pressure at all. Norman, I wanted to ask on reflection of your COVID-19 reporting, is there anything that you've done uh, to change the way that you've started to report uh, from the journals or just uh, other bits of information that are circulating in response to some of the feedback that you've received? The the main difference is, and I I lived through the uh, beginning, you know, the, the early days of my broadcasting career were, were also the early days of HIV epidemic. And the same situation applies now as applies then, is that the science was pretty lousy, uh, early studies, small numbers, preliminary announcements. Um, every second person had their own patent medicine that they wanted to use and try out, and also, you know, lots of red herrings. And it's an inherently dangerous place for. Um, a journalist to be because the data you're relying on are unreliable, the scientific papers you're relying on aren't that scientific, the small numbers, they're done in a hurry, they haven't been properly peer reviewed. And therefore, you've just got to be, you've got to slow down, read them and communicate them for what they're worth. It'll all get better, but it's not getting better fast. And the um, and so it's, you get I get very nervous at times that I could do or say something that's really wrong and and cause harm, and I and I'm lucky I think so far that I haven't, but it's a fear that stays with me every day. So you just got to you just got to slow down and read and be careful and not jump at shadows. Um, and I've heard from some people. Um that they think that you've been commenting on aspects of this crisis that you're not personally an expert on. So I'm talking about like epidemiologists. Um, Is that criticism valid or do you think that there's a role for journalists to jump in and and talk about things that they maybe haven't done a PhD in? Um, Well, I've behaved as a journalist all the way through. So if you hear me commenting on something, I've not plucked it out of the back of my head. I'm speaking to experts in the area all the time. And uh, what do, you're absolutely right. What do I know? But what do I know is I know, the pe- I know people who are working in the area. I know people who are expert. I know people who have dealt with pandemics, sorry, epidemics on the ground, some, some pandemics, and who have got experience and who are eminent and well-published epidemiologists. And they provide an alternate view to the one that you, you have been at times hearing from the federal government. So I have not been giving my own opinion. I've been given, I've been talking about what others believed to be the case and as an alternate view of the situation. So um, absolutely fair criticism. Who am I to be believed? Um, I'm as good as my contacts and, my back- and the people who are backgrounding me. One thing, though, to point out is that you're not 
an ordinary medical journalist uh, such as Felicity and I, you actually have studied medicine and worked as a medical practitioner. So I was going to ask you, how do you know when to speak as a medical journalist and when to step up and speak to the public as a doctor or an expert in an area? I try never to speak as a doctor or as an expert in the area. I always try and speak as somebody who's you know, ciphering other people's information out to the public. So even if I do talk back on local radio, um, I will be quoting literature, not my own my own view. And if people ask for a medical opinion about their, their own condition, I don't give it. Um, I, I, you know, I'm I trained in pediatrics. I've never even been a general practitioner, and I wouldn't even trust what I say anymore about pediatrics. So, the the um, what I bring is um, years of training and knowledge in medicine, including in public health and epidemiology, which I've had a long interest in. And uh, and the um, and I translate that into um, information for people. So if people say, "Well, what my finger's gone red and it's going to fall off," I'll try and quote the literature on fingers that go red and fall off, rather than giving my view of the situation. And one final question: um, What struck me about this whole COVID nineteen COVID nineteen crisis is that it's really split people into two camps. So there are those that say that the public should have all the information and be allowed to debate it and discuss it and think about it. And then there are those people who think that only the experts should be allowed to have all the information and, you know, then they should sort of make up the public health measures and tell everyone about them. Um, And this became quite obvious with the debate around whether the government should release their modelling, which um, they released some of it today, but I don't think that was all of it. Where do you fall in this debate? Um, I think it's, I think it's very unfair to the general community to just dump raw data without some interpretation. And therefore, so I'm in the camp where I think that um, we should be transparent about the decisions we're making. We should be transparent about the options and why you've chosen which option um, and um, and allow debate along those lines. And this is serious stuff when it comes to pandemic control, because we've got an economy that's on its knees. People are not going to be able to socially, socially distance themselves for an awful lot longer. It's really hard to do. And you've got the, the problem of kids being home from school. And th- therefore, you need to give people a pathway forward. And that's what I've been arguing for a long time. And, and the people who, you know, I, you know the, some of the people I listen to and who are experts in this area is that it's possible to lay out a path and say to the public, look, we think by doing X, Y, and Z and you doing your job, we can get down to single digit growth rates, you know, single digit new cases per day. And at that point, we think that we can control this epidemic pretty well if we all stay responsible. So here's what we're going to do. When we get down to five cases a day, we're going to let schools go back. And we're just going to see what happens over two weeks. And if things go nuts, we'll have to close schools or we'll have to do X, Y, and Z. And if schools are okay, then what we might do is actually let people go back to work rather than working from home. And we let that happen and see what happens. Because at the moment we've got community spread and that's the fuel for the next fire. And uh, even though it's at low numbers, low num- small numbers can become very large numbers very quickly. But we could have a path to slowly, steadily over a period of many weeks, taking your foot off the, pe- off the brake pedal. 
and lay that out for people, but making people understand that if it goes nuts and we misbehave again in a sense of losing social distancing, we're going to be back on lockdown. Um, and sharing the agony of decision-making with the public, I think, is something that could be done. And we haven't done it too much. Did a little bit today with the release of the modelling, but not enough. Well, thank you so much, Dr Swan, for all those insights. It's really fascinating to hear what's happening at the ABC and you're right in the middle of it. So, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this progresses over time. My pleasure. It was great to have Dr Norman Swan join us on the show today. And also, Felicity, it's good for us to know that we're not the only ones drowning at the moment in a world of the most frequent uh, science publishing ever happening and the fact that no matter how much you read you just really can't keep up with this unfolding crisis. Yeah it's a crazy time to be a health reporter it really is. We're continuously reporting on the COVID-19 crisis with our live blog which you can tune into every day on our website. We have a dedicated journalist updating it by the hour as things develop that are relevant to GPs and also if you have something else that is affecting you from the COVID-19 crisis, please get in touch with us. We're on Twitter, on Facebook, or you can reach out individually to all of our journalists. I'm Francine at medicalrepublic.com.au on email. And I'm Felicity at medicalrepublic.com.au. Thanks for listening.